Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. In the last episode, we talked about the driving force behind the wars in Waikato, Taranaki and Tauranga. Overwhelming demand from settlers for Māori land. This demand didn't just come from ordinary colonists. There was also a group of extremely rich and powerful investors who made piles of money buying and selling that land. People like Frederick Whitaker and Thomas Russell. Russell was the founder of BNZ Bank. Some of these investors were also senior figures in the colonial government. During the Waikato War, Frederick Whitaker was the Premier and Thomas Russell was the Minister for Defence. Both these men pushed for war and for the confiscation of Māori land, then made huge profits buying and selling that land. In the meantime, land confiscations and the disruption of the war caused huge frustration and fear for many North Island Māori. This flowed into support for religious movements, which seemed to offer Māori a way out of the conflict. Those movements started peacefully, but in the end, the fighting only got more brutal. I'm Lee Madam McLaughlin. I'm William Ray, and this is the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. The end of the war in Waikato coincided with the rise of a Māori prophet, a man called Te Ua Haumene. Te Ua had been an early convert to Christianity back in the 1830s, but his experience fighting Pākehā and Taranaki and tensions over land made him question the teachings of European missionaries. In 1862, Te Ua said he had visions of an angel who told him that Māori were God's new chosen people. He preached that God would deliver land taken by Pākehā back into Māori hands. He called his new religion Paimaride. In some ways, you could see Paimadere as a form of Kotahitanga, a Māori unity movement. It's sort of similar to Kingitanga. Both movements were trying to forge bonds between Māori of different iwi to resist Pākehā pressure for land. 
Te Ua called for peaceful resistance. In fact, Paimarere literally translates to good and peaceful. But the pressure for land kept growing. The government sent in so-called military settlers to occupy confiscated land. Basically, these were British soldiers who were told that so long as they could keep Māori off the land, it would be theirs to keep. The situation was incredibly tense. In 1864, a group of Paimairere warriors ambushed a British army patrol in Taranaki. They killed seven troops before the rest of the patrol escaped. Then they cut the heads off the corpses and gave them to Tuua Homini. This was an old tradition in Māori warfare. Claiming an enemy's head was a way to degrade their mana and enhance your own. But the British were horrified by the beheadings. Governor Gray described Paimarere as, quote, repugnant to all humanity, and he outlawed the religion. General Duncan Cameron tried to suppress the faith by force, but that didn't stop its spread. Frustrations with dodgy land sales and confiscation made many Māori sympathise with Paimarere. In the Bay of Plenty, Te Ua's disciples rallied support from Te Wakatohia, one of the major iwi in the region. Te Whakatohia had not taken part in the New Zealand wars, but they were frustrated that the murder of one of their rangatira by a pro-government iwi had gone unpunished by Governor Gray. Plus, some people believed the government was spying on them through a local missionary called Karl Volkner. A faction of Te Wakatohia took action. They ritually executed Volkner. Then one of Te Ua's followers desecrated his corpse. In their eyes, this was justified as utu, both for Volkner spying and the death of the rangatira. But Pākehā colonists saw all this very differently. For them, it was confirmation that Paimarere were violent, anti-European fanatics. These colonists wanted retaliation for what they saw as a brutal murder, and they also wanted the government to step up its efforts to suppress Paimarere. This is partly what triggered the next major offensive of the New Zealand wars. A four-week campaign into central Taranaki, led by General Trevor Shute. When you read about this campaign, you'll see phrases like scorched earth tactics and take no prisoners. An official back in London wrote this about Shute's campaign. I doubt whether the natives have ever attempted to devastate our settlements as we are devastating theirs. There is more destruction than fighting. Okay, so some people were uneasy about this campaign, but it was very popular with the vast majority of colonial settlers. From the mid-1860s onwards, more and more colonists directly participated in the fighting as volunteer militia. These militia often lacked the discipline of professional British soldiers. Like in Taranaki, a group called the Kaiiwi Cavalry ignored the orders of their officers and charged a group of young, unarmed Māori boys, killing two of them. But it wasn't just Europeans fighting Pai Māori there. 
In fact, the majority of the fighting in this phase of the New Zealand wars was Māori fighting other Māori. Partly this was to do with intertribal tensions, which predated European arrival in New Zealand, but also many Māori felt the new faith undermined the mana of rangatira by encouraging people to pledge their allegiance to a prophet. On the east coast, you saw many members of Rungawakata and Te Aitanga a Mahaki become followers of Paimarire. They then got into some very serious conflicts with Ngāti Parau and Ngāti Kahungunu, both of whom were mostly allied with the government. This all ended with some bloody battles around 1865, where Paimarire forces were largely defeated. Three or four hundred Paimarire supporters were exiled from the east coast to Wharekauri, the Chatham Islands. This is where we meet the next major religious leader of the New Zealand wars. Among the exiles was a Rungawakata man called Te Koti Ariki Rangi Te Turuki. The government had accused Te Koti of spying for Paimariri, but without evidence. He definitely wasn't a follower of Paimariri, he'd actually fought against them. But he was sent off to live in exile without any trial. And while he was gone, the government confiscated his land. While he was in the Chatham Islands, Te Koti got sick. Tossing and turning in his cot, he had religious visions and believed he'd heard the voice of God. He founded a new religion called Ringatu, the upraised hand, and it rapidly gained support among the exiles. In 1868, Te Koti and his followers captured a supply ship, sailed back to the mainland, and began a guerrilla campaign which roamed all the way from the east coast over to the shores of Lake Taupo and up through the dense forests of Uruweta. Eighteen sixty eight was a very scary year for the colonial government. At the same time as they were fighting Te Koti on the east coast, they were also fighting another Māori prophet in Taranaki, the Ngāti Rua Nui Rangatira Rifati Tokowaru. Te Tokowaru took over the leadership of Paimarire after Te Ua Haumene died in 1866. He tried to end the fighting in Taranaki by preaching pacifism to his followers and meeting with British garrisons, but as the government continued to confiscate and settle Taranaki land, he was backed into a corner, facing the colonial army and its Māori allies with, at first, only a handful of warriors. Unfortunately for the government... Titokowaru turned out to be a military genius. He made extensive use of the same kind of fortified anti-artillery power which had worked so well against the British in earlier wars. British troops took huge casualties trying to breach these defences, and then Māori would just withdraw deeper into the bush and set up another power. But by the late 1860s, British military leaders had worked out this tactic, so they were reluctant to fight head-on. Te Tokowaru had to find another way to keep the British coming out to fight on his terms. And he did this with a series of letters he sent to the British authorities. Here's one of the more famous ones. I have begun to eat the flesh of the white man. I have eaten him like the flesh of the cow, cooked in the pot. All have eaten him, even the women and the children. My throat is continually open for the eating of human flesh 
by day and by night. This was a bluff. Titukawaru never actually ate anybody. Historians like James Belich think Titukawaru was using threats like this to outrage and provoke the Crown forces so they would keep throwing themselves at especially prepared defences. And it worked. At the Battle of Tenutu or Timanu, the Crown forces were dealt a crushing defeat when they came under heavy fire from warriors who were hidden in hollow trees and under other kinds of camouflage. One of the people killed was the famous Prussian mercenary Gustavus von Tempsky, who Māori called Manuro, 100 birds. His death was seen as a tragedy for Pākehā settlers and a huge victory for Taranaki Māori. By this point, the New Zealand wars had dragged on for more than 20 years and the government was freaking out. Some people worried that if Te Tokowaru, Te Koti and Kingitanga all unified, they might be a serious threat to the whole colony. Colonists in Wanganui were fleeing their homes. Some left New Zealand altogether. Writers in Pākehā newspapers started to suggest the only long-term solution was the total extermination of Māori, which ignored the fact that many of those Māori were fighting on the government's side. The war got even more brutal. In Taranaki, bounties were offered for the severed heads of Paimadere followers. Meanwhile, on the east coast, Te Koti launched a vicious midnight raid on the village of Matawhero near Gisborne. About 60 people, Māori and Pākehā, were bayoneted, clubbed or shot to death, including women and infants. The survivors fled across the Waipawa River to a local British garrison. Lieutenant Frederick Gascoigne described the scene like this. Men and women were eagerly inquiring of every newcomer for information of their missing friends. Mothers were weeping alone for their children, wives for their husbands, and husbands for their wives. To Te Koti, the slaughter was utu for his illegal imprisonment in the Chatham Islands, but it became infamous among settlers as the Poverty Bay Massacre, and those settlers demanded utu of their own. Just seven weeks later, Colonel George Whitmore and a combined force of Pākehā and Māori troops launched an assault on Te Koti's formidable pa at Ngātapa. Te Koti himself escaped, but around 120 of his followers were executed by government-allied Māori, while settler soldiers and even a cabinet minister watched. A member of the armed constabulary called J.P. Ward was one of the witnesses. Here's how he described it. There was no mention of a trial, or if any or all of them had participated in the Poverty Bay Massacre. That did not matter to us one straw. They were shot and their bodies left to swelter and rot under the summer's sun, and their bones to bleach to this day. All of this, and very much more, as done beneath the meteor flag of mighty England. Ultimately, the worst fears of the colonial government never happened. 
In Taranaki, Titukawaru's followers abandoned him. According to one story, he was accused of sleeping with another chief's wife, which violated his authority to lead. Meanwhile, on the east coast, Tikuti's forces were driven out of their sanctuary in the dense forest of Te Uruwera by a brutal anti-insurgency campaign and forced to take refuge in the king country. Later in life, Tikuti became a pacifist and he actually made apologies to the Māori and Pākehā who had harmed. By 1872, the New Zealand wars were pretty much over. Nearly 3,000 people lost their lives. More than 2,000 of those casualties were Māori, and many of the people killed on both sides were civilians. But death and injury weren't the only consequences. The wars broke the ability of Māori to resist colonisation by force. All through the conflict, the government confiscated land from so-called rebels, 1.5 million hectares in total. That's about 5% of New Zealand's entire land area. 5% might not sound like much, but this was some of the North Island's most valuable land. The fertile farmland of Waikato and Taranaki, the natural deepwater harbour at Tauranga. Sometimes the government wanted this land so much, it authorised confiscations from neutral Māori, or even from Māori who'd fought alongside the Crown. Talking about confiscations in terms of percentages and hectares can sound a bit sterile. I mean, for Māori, this story isn't just about the fact the land was taken. It's also about what happened to that land after it was taken. For example, here's an extract from an article by Māori journalist and editor Leonie Hayden about land confiscation at Ihumatau, a peninsula near Manukau Harbour. In 1863, the land was illegally confiscated from Māori. Sacred hills were quarried, 800-year-old burial sites were demolished, archaeological remains were destroyed, a sewage treatment plant was built over traditional fishing grounds, and a dye spill killed the local creek. When we talk about the government seizing Māori land, we're not just talking about losing farmland or houses. We're talking about the destruction of Urupa and the desecration of tapu. It's not just economic damage, it's spiritual and cultural damage. And these confiscations from the New Zealand wars weren't the end of the government's efforts to seize Māori land. In fact, most North Island land was transferred into Pākehā ownership after the wars ended. In a future episode, we'll look at how that happened. But... First, we'll look at why South Islanders wanted to become a separate country, how a scrap over booze won women the right to vote, and how refrigeration saved our economy from the brink of disaster. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.